So another, um, some words from Rumi, <clears throat> which might not make sense to the rational mind, as so much of his writing doesn't necessarily point to the rational mind, so don't listen with the rational mind. There is a passion in me that doesn't long for anything from another human being. I was given something else, a cap to wear in both worlds. It fell off, no matter. One morning I went to a place beyond dawn. One morning I went to a place beyond dawn, a source of sweetness that flows and is never less. I have been shown a beauty that would confuse both worlds, but I won't cause that uproar. So I read that poem because I want to continue the theme that I began a few weeks ago, um, which is looking into this mysterious thing we call ourselves, that we give a name and a personality and a form and lots of concepts and ideas and the story of me central casting. We are the star of our own movie. And um, Buddhist teachings point to the need to look and inquire into this, this mystery of ourselves. And particularly the, um, the, the constriction and contraction and uh, uh, pain or difficulty we can create by not understanding who we are, by mistaking our nature, by limiting our nature, by the way we identify with certain aspects of our experience as who we are. So I just came off a retreat myself which was very um, delightful, as retreats can be, not always, but this one was, um, exploring the theme of love and aloneness. And, um, and it, it, the reason I'm mentioning that is that um, it was really apparent to me on the retreat the relationship between when we are no longer... Um, creating uh, or identifying with a limited sense of self that we normally do when we're not, when, we're, when, the, when the, sort of the egoic mind isn't uh, taking all of this mind-body to be what's really true and we can see from a deeper place that who we are is beyond as Rumi's pointing to and he says, I, I, I was given a cap to wear in both worlds I went to a place beyond dawn where we, we move beyond the usual limits of our, of our egoic, rational mind and we see, we taste something deeper, something more quieter, more silent, more vast, more open, more profound. We have some intimation of some deeper reality, deeper truth about ourselves. And on this particular retreat, there was, there was an emphasis on the exploration of aloneness. And what I, what I re- came to realize was that um, 
the 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 story making aspect of our minds, the I making, the my making, the, the busyness of our minds, uh, interfere with us being really alone. You know, we're always in relationship to ourselves and our mind, and it keeps us busy and preoccupied, stops us from feeling lonely. We just chatter all day to ourselves. You know. <laughs> but when we um, cease to uh, buy into that process and sort of step outside of it, as it were, even momentarily, we touch into a greater capacity for peace, for well-being, for ease. You know, there's those rare moments in the meditation when the, when the mind is quiet and there's a big outbreath. Oh, finally, quietude, peace, silence, stillness. And we sense we see it has a certain truthfulness to it, a certain realness to it. When we touch those places, we drop out of the busyness of our habitual worrying, thinking, planning mind, and just are fully here. And one thing that we can discover in that silence and in that peace is that it's really imbued with love. That true aloneness, which is really resting in our own nature, our own being, is not separate from love. And that can be discovered when we're not so preoccupied with the the busyness and the chattering that's going on upstairs in the coconut. So last time I was here, I asked people to pay attention to... So I talked a little about how we construct this sense of self, the self-image, the self-identity. And I asked people to pay attention in in the coming weeks to how this sense of self comes and goes, how you see it appear and disappear. Whether it's there when you wake up in those quiet moments of the day before the, the, the mind and its machinations kicks into gear... And I think that's a really useful reflection to pay attention to that, that process. So I want to speak a little through a slightly different angle this time, because I think it's worthy to keep exploring this theme, even though it can be perplexing and sometimes <coughs> confusing and baffling to the mind. So in this practice of Vipassana, insight meditation, we use... The, the, ground, the ground of the practice is mindfulness, is paying attention, being aware. And as we establish that practice, that, that orientation, we, um, through the process of being aware, we, we, we get to see over time the various aspects of our experience coming and going. You know, there's, there's more. We get less caught up in the events, the content of our experience, and there's more capacity to simply rest in the awareness and to be present to all these different things coming and going. Thoughts coming and going, feelings coming and going, emotions, sensations, contractions, expansions, love, joy, various things come and go right in our, in our experience. 
And one of the thing, one of the one of the functions of mindfulness is it allows us to uh, disentangle and what we call disidentify, which is where we have enough space where we're not so caught in the midst of wrapped up in the middle of our feelings and reactivities and dramas, and there's a spaciousness of mind to see all of that coming and going at times. People know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. So this is, this is quite accessible. So from that vantage point, um, what we can turn our attention to as, as, a, as another way of exploring this teaching on the self is, is the Buddha's teaching on what he called the five aggregates or the five skandhas, five aspects of our being, our mind-body, that we... Uh, that are the sort of the most common places that we identify and create this sense of self. So I want to speak to some of those this evening. So the the first place that we most commonly and and habitually identify with me, with the sense of self, is what? What would be the most common thing? The body, right. So when we come into this world, many years ago, um, sorry, I'm getting a little entangled here. As we come out of what, what is, I think, now known to be a more undifferentiated, sort of oceanic, somewhat blissful, except when the body has certain needs. Um, when we emerge from that sort of merged yumminess with mom, the first sense of, uh, sense of separation is through the body. The first sense of how we know ourselves, separate from mom, separate from dad, separate from the world, is through this physical form. And there's a lot of delight and pleasure, and you see young babies and infants, and they're getting to crawl and stand and, and bang things and have control over the phenomenal world. There's a lot of excitement and, 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 and power and enthusiasm. And that becomes the sort of core of our, of our, of our self-reference, the body as this, this, this is me separate from the world. This is how I know myself. So, and as, of course, as we get older, this becomes more familiar because we live with us as we inhabit this body, these body clothes. And so when someone says, who are you? I said, well, it's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm this body. I'm, this is who I am. And yet the, the Buddha was very clear in, in this teaching and many other teachings he would say, if this body was self, then you, would tell it, you could tell it to do this and do that, and it would do it. That if, if this body was truly ourselves, it wouldn't change. It wouldn't get old. So, one of the things that, that's useful to explore is to see how 
what we so commonly associate as me and mine, this body, this physical form, is functioning and performing quite happily without any interference from us. You know, breathing, even though we think we should, we should control it in the meditation, pumping blood, growing hair, digesting food. It all happens quite happily by itself. We actually have very little to do with it, except some choice about what we do with the physical body and what we put inside and what we eat and drink. And But it's mostly just doing its thing. It's quite miraculous. It's quite selfless in that process. It's selflessly living, breathing, growing, aging, regenerating, So a friend of mine gave me these, some stats on the body, which I, I love because it speaks to this, uh, this aspect of the body miraculously doing its thing without any, without any knowledge of our conscious self. So, so we're made up of 100 trillion cells. I love this particular fact. It doesn't really relate to the talk, but I love it anyway. If you could unwind and join DNA from the genes of your cells, it would fit into an ice cube. But the string would stretch 80 million miles, Earth to the sun and back 400 times. Isn't that amazing? That's within each and every one of us. I wonder we feel big sometimes. You know? <laughs> So while you're listening to this current sentence, 50,000 of those cells will die. And in the next sentence, 50,000 of those cells will be reborn. And you wonder why you're feeling tired this evening. (laughs) So the body makes 100 billion blood cells every day. 100 billion. That's a lot of cells. And it does it without our, you know, going, okay, Make, okay, you know, you know, whatever we do to make a cell and knit or something, you know. It just does it. Keeps us alive, keeps us healthy, keeps us robust. We grow our skin, this, this, this largest organ of the body. We grow it once a month. Replenishes itself once a month. We rub it, we scratch it, we hurt it, we, we cut it, we bruise it, and it grows back. So, and all aspects of the body are continually replenishing, replacing themselves. So, if you don't like who you are, in a few years you'll be a completely different person. (laughs) Remember, it takes only 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. And 200,000 frowns creates a brow line. So, you can count how many times you've frowned hard to imagine that you frown that much when you see how many lines are on your forehead. <laughs> so why am I saying all this? Because um, just to, to, to take a step back and uh, want to see the miraculous nature of this, this organism that we inhabit, whatever the we is, 
but also to see that we're not so in control as we like to think we are. You know, the self, the egoic self, likes to, you know, it's bound by the need to control, the need to control phenomena, to, to minimize fearful, threatening circumstances. So when we're meditating or you're just being present to your experience and there's some sensations like you're sitting and maybe there's some tingling in the back or some stabbing in the knee if you're sitting on the floor. From the point of mindfulness, they're just simply sensations coming and going in, in awareness. But from the perspective of, of the mind that likes to make a story about everything, relate everything in a self-referencing way back to ourselves. It's, oh, it's oh, my knee. Oh, it's hurting. Oh, my backache. Oh, that injury. Oh, I hope it doesn't get bad. I hope I can hang out during the sit. Or you know, I hope I'm not going to cramp and you know, have a spasm and get wheeled out of here in a wheelchair. And <laughs> you know, we create this whole story of our history and our back and why we can't meditate and this is a problem and I'm never going to get enlightened because my backache and I should have played high soccer at high school. I knew that was a problem. <laughs> you notice how we make these stories? We just continually live in these stories about this, this constructed sense of self, this, this idea of who we are. And we have lots of stories about our body. We don't just accept the reality of the physical body, but we have a lot of identity around the body and preference and often reaction and rejection to the body. Whether our body is young or old, or large or small, or tall or short, or in all the different ways, all the varieties of human physical experience, strong, weak, healthy, strong, attractive, unattractive, we have a lot of ideas about our body and what it says about who we are. And those identities, those... those, those um, Stories can be very painful and often not so true. So a friend of mine was on a workshop recently and they were doing a dyad, a a sort of inquiry, one-on-one. And um, the, the... the, the man she was working with said he's never done this kind of exercise. He's always been afraid of these sort of these workshops where you do this work because he's always afraid that he'll be perceived as ugly when he does these exercises. And, just, and she just saw how what tremendous suffering came from that identity, that self-perception. So just to, to reflect on how you relate to the body and what kind of story, what kind of self-image you have about your body and how it can change moment to moment, especially if we're comparing ourselves to other bodies, which there are a lot of. And there's always somebody more, what, strong, robust, healthy, happier, beautiful, whatever the, 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 you know, the mode of comparison is. So that, that, that sense of stability is always 
unreliable. If we're, if we're looking at, if we're pinning our identity on, pinning our sense of self-worth on that identity, it's very, it's very unstable. Like all these identities, they're all very changeable. They're not really ultimately true, so they don't provide a kind of refuge. I was reading an interview with Mel Streep uh, today, and she had this great line. She said, I can't remember the last time I really worried about being appealing. And as she's laughing, she's, she comments, it was a really, really long time ago. <laughs> and it spoke to that place where we were not so identified with our body, not so wrapped up in how it looks, how it appears, how other people are going to like it. There's a lot of spaciousness. So in the, in the practice of mindfulness supports this quality of not being so, of seeing the identification, but having something more spacious to hold it in, so we're not so gripped. So this isn't saying we don't have a body, this isn't saying ignore the body. There's a lot of teachings in India at the time of the Buddha that, that thought of the, the, the way to salvation was to, to um, uh, mortify the body. Fortunately, we, you know, he learned that that wasn't really a good idea, so we don't have to do that. We still do it anyway with, you know, going to spinning classes and, you know, and horrible diets and things like that. But we don't need to uh, punish our body. We need to take care of the body. We need to, you know, just like as we take care of any this beautiful physical reality, we need to take care and be loving and kind to ourselves, to our body. Rumi says, what is this body the shadow of a shadow of your love that somehow contains the entire universe. What is this body? The shadow of a shadow of your love that somehow contains the entire universe. So sometimes in meditation we can have a very different sense of the body. When we get concentrated, particularly, the body can feel, it can dissolve. It can be a sense of nobody sitting here, just a sense of presence. It can expand so it feels like as big as the universe or contract to the size of a pea. It can be filled with light and you can feel like energy, like bliss. And so it shakes up this idea of who I am as this, 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 this you know, form here that's wrapped in skin. If you, if you just close your eyes right now, just sense yourself, close your eyes, let go of your image of the body, and what's present? Where, where, is the, where, is the, where is the concept of your shape, size, weight, height, age? Where is that? In your experience, none of that's present. There's just awareness. There's sensation. There's maybe tingling or pressure or heaviness or touching the skin, the, the ground, the clothes. So it gives us a very different, you can open your eyes, it gives you a very different perception of the body. It can loosen up that sense of, well, this is who I am. I'm, I'm six foot and I'm you know, Caucasian and male. and That's true on a, on a relative level, but we can sense into another reality. You know. On another level, we're just subatomic particles bouncing around, little rays of light, you know, solidified. That's another perspective, depending on what lens we're looking through. 
So the, the, the point of this teaching is to, is to, is to, is to, to, not, to invite us not to limit who or what we are to, the very, to, to these various things that we do limit ourselves. So we limit ourselves to this physical form and say, this is who I am. And yet if we probe our experience more deeply, we see that's not necessarily the true. And at the same time, the body in this paradoxical way is the vehicle which we use in meditation and in our work here to explore our experience in reality. So this is from Achan Mun, a great Thai meditation teacher. He said, in your investigation of the world, <clears throat> never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature, see the elements that comprise it, see the impermanent and satisfactory and selfless nature of the body while sitting or walking or standing or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully, fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world would become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So we use our body to, to examine, to illumine our experience and to understand a deeper understanding of, of reality. So the second place we commonly identify with and, and sort of misappropriate a sense of self with, is with our feelings, with our emotions very powerful force in our experience. And we all have sort of pathways that we've developed over time, familiar grooves, familiar emotional streams, reactivities, that we, that we take to be who we are. And you might hear yourself saying, well, you know, you might describing yourself, describing yourself or describing somebody else. I'm, I'm such and such, a, you know, I'm an angry person or I'm a happy person or I'm, I'm depressed or I'm joyful or optimistic. Or... And so we identify very much with these feelings as also as who we are, as, 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 as if we can be limited, as if we can be contained by pointing to our emotional life and saying, this is who I am. It points to an aspect of our being. But can we say that's really who we are? And notice what happens when you identify with yourself as a particular kind of person through a particular kind of emotion. Because our experience, if we look, is so malleable and changeable and influenceable. But can we really say, oh, I'm a, an angry person, fearful person? Or is it more accurate to say, you know, fear and anger and all these different emotions come through, are known, they come and go like everything else. But they don't have to, we don't have to coalesce a self-image around it that is constricting and not really true. There's a license plate in the town, next town down, that um, has on it, number one loser. <laughs> I thought, that's someone who's you know, taken an identity, <laughs> taken an emotion, and really run with it, you know. <laughs> really drives. 
and then advertises it on his car. <laughs> or her car. So we do that, you know. We, we, we take these, these, these aspects of our experience and then we lay claim to it in, in a way that's somewhat, um, well, it's misinformed. And it can, can cause a lot of suffering. So no, one, one way we do that a lot is with our critic. You know, one of the grooves that we lay down, one of the emotional grooves that we lay down quite strongly is with our critic. You know, the way that we believe ourselves to be not good enough, to be not smart enough, to be not cute enough, not wealthy enough, not wise enough, whatever the story is. And we can take that to be our identity. And that's really completely miserable. Now, what a setup for suffering to believe the critic has anything, has anything to do with who we are. It's a completely distorted, outdated perception <laughs> that we should not listen to for a second. <laughs> really, I'm serious. There's, there's, we need to make the distinction between a judgment and a discernment. The discernment is, is just an, evalu- you know, an objective evaluation. Well, you know, things are like this or like that. A judgment is laden with a pejorative, emotionally heavy, uh, blaming, shaming rhetoric that makes us feel you know, hopeless and lousy and pathetic and worthless. And it's amazing that we agree to take, to take, to take, birth in that, to, to take that up as an identity. Yeah, I really am lousy and pathetic and miserable. Yeah. You know, to see this, see, it's, just, it's, it's, interesting, it's interesting what we do with our minds. You know. um, and, how, and how they can really not be working in our, in our best interest. So a third place we, we, we um, this is, I mean, again, the list gets more subtle. The third place we identify is through our perceptions. We believe our perceptions to be true. We believe our point of view of reality is really how it is. And that we're objective and what we're seeing is the truth. Anybody, anybody not think that their point of view is the right one? <laughs> right? And how many, there's 150 people in the room? Okay. So it's good to have some spaciousness around, oh, the lens that I'm looking through may not be how it is. The lens in which I perceive myself may not be how it is. There may be room for another point of view, different, vaster, more clear, more objective. Not to dismiss or put down our our perception, it has its own validity, but to see that it's, it's usually influenced by our conditioning, by our history, by our culture, by our family, by our religious upbringing, by how we're feeling that day, by what we ate for lunch. You know, it, it's very, very um, subjective. So the Korean uh, Zen master asked his students to not side with themselves. Don't side with yourself, he said. So it's not me to say don't side not doesn't mean to say side against you, but just you know take it you know imagine when you're having those many arguments you have with whoever you're having arguments with, and to, and just take the point of view. Oh, don't side with yourself. What would it be like to see this from another point of view, another perception? So um, the fourth 
constellation that we that we probably most habitually after the body, but in some ways this is more current because the the, the content is more current. Uh, is the the whole realm of our of our thinking mind, how we how we really pride ourselves and, and, and so closely identify with our mind and our thoughts as who we are. There's that great book title from uh, Mark Epstein, Thoughts Without a Thinker. His book about psychotherapy and Buddhism. Thoughts Without a Thinker, pointing to the fact that we have thoughts, but there's no thinker behind them. We assume that the thinker is us, but thoughts are thinking themselves. Thoughts are arising and passing out of conditions in the mind, in the brain. So how is it just to try that on? That the thoughts have no thinker behind them. Does your mind protest and rebel? What do you mean? What about me? (laughs) I'm the one who's thinking these thoughts. I'm special. And they're very important thoughts. Even though I thought 90% of the thoughts yesterday, they're still important. So our mind is a tricky thing. It creates a lot of, uh, does many amazing, wonderful, and beautiful, and brilliant, creative, imaginative things. And it also plays a lot of havoc with, with, with us and with reality and with understanding what's true. The Buddha said, mind is the forerunner of all things. With our thoughts, we make the world. With our thoughts, we make the world. So again, we, we think the construction of our thoughts and how we, how we understand the world through our thoughts is how it is. So this is from um, Byron Katie, who speaks to this piece quite eloquently. She says, mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning, and yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. Not until you wake up after a night of sleep and say, I, when the I arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you question it, there's no attachment. It's just simply a movie. Get the popcorn, here it comes. And she says later, she says, I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere, and now, <laughs> I, and now I exist as a don't-know mind. So the Buddha talked about this, um, what he called the I-making and the my-making mind. He called it Sakya Diddy, Sakya, self-view one of the fetters, one of the obstacles to, to awakening, to realization. One of the three, one of the, the first three obstacles that get seen through and on the first stage of awakening is this, this particular way that we create the sense of self through our thoughts, through our ideas, through our perceptions. And when we see through that, when we see that that constellation, that construct, that 
that edifice that we built in our minds isn't really f- referring to anything. It's a, it's a fabrication that we've created in our minds. It doesn't really adequately describe the truth of our experience. Then we see we see the truth. We see clearly. It brings a great deal of peace. So when we don't have that perception, we have bumper stickers that read, it's all about me. Seen those bumper stickers? It's all about me? Yeah. Or t-shirts or badge, you know, pins. Or, you know, and that's how we live. We, we live in a world that's self-referencing, that we think the world is revolving around us. It just happens to be these other problematic people who think the world revolves around them. <laughs> so we can see how, um, uh, how the mind operates. The Buddha talked about the process of papancha, the way the mind proliferates based on all kinds of different experiences how it creates, fabricates a story and a structure and creates this sense of self out of, out of our experience. So an example could be you're sitting in meditation and um, whether, whether it's a good meditation or bad meditation doesn't really matter because the mind will make a story about it. So maybe it's a good meditation and you're feeling concentrated or calm or peaceful or blissful or you know, or you're actually feeling your breath for the first time ever, you know, for at least three breaths. And suddenly the, the, the thought pops up, wow, this is looking really good. Ah, I'm really getting the hang of this. You know, maybe in a few more weeks I'll be teaching this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I could see myself, you know, you know, becoming a monk or a nun and, you know, really taking this on seriously, you know, getting enlightened and then, or the thought comes, oh, I can't wait to tell my friends what happened in my meditation. It was really good. They're going to think I'm so great. So we, we, we create this, there's an experience, you know, calm, peace, whatever it is. And then we, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of self, there's a self-image, a notion of ourselves gets created. Oh, there's a me meditating and I'm doing really well. And that self is usually in reference to other people, so we can't wait to share that with somebody else. Or we're doing walking meditation. Often people report and then very calm, concentrated, and then the thought pops up, I'm looking really good right now. I hope people notice. I'm looking really good. I'm looking like the Buddha. We start getting this grandiose, you know, sense of I've suddenly become the Buddha because I'm present for three minutes, you know. <laughs> and we do that all the time, you know, whether it's meditation or riding a bike or, you know, doing a project at work or, you know, doing something great with the kids in the park or, you know, we're, we're in the middle of it. We're immersed. We're painting. We're, we're, we're just we're doing what we're doing. We're polishing the kitchen floor just content doing, just immersed in the, the ordinary activity. And then, then you know, what my teacher in India would call the I-thought pops up. The I-thought and claims the experience. Oh, look how well I'm polishing the floor. 
how great, I should be on one of those TV ads, you know? <laughs> and we go from, the, from, the, from what's often a joyful experience of just being in the simplicity and the immediacy of an experience. You know, we're washing the car, and it's just, we're just washing the car. We're not rushing to get somewhere else. We're just washing the car. We're doing something, you know, gardening or something, very kind of quiet. And, and it's a very, it can be a very full experience. And then, and then the, 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 you know, the eye thought pops up. Oh, I wonder if my neighbors have noticed how nice the flowers are doing here. You know, <laughs> my flowers have come up earlier than theirs. I think it's because I put such good, you know, soil nutrients in we build this sense of self. I'm, I'm the better gardener. I'm the great car washer. You know. I'm so, so pay attention to this in in your week. So there's a different. There's a few different ways that this 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 quality of papancha, which is a proliferating tendency of mind, where the mind jumps and associates from one experience to the next, which is what we do all the time. Which is why we're following our breath in meditation. And we find ourselves, you know, scuba diving in the Maldives two minutes later, you know, because the mind associates, you know, meditation, the Buddha, India, vacation, oh, yeah, diving, oh, yeah, you know, and we're sunbathing in the Maldives and we're having a great time, you know, and we're meditating in the land of the Buddha. You know. And we wonder how, what happened to the meditation because we get lost in this this trance of the mind. You know, we, love, we love that part of our minds, you know, unless we're trying to meditate. And it gets very frustrating. So um, one of the ways this proliferating tendency arises um, and, and creates this sense of self is when, we, when we're in contact with something pleasant. When we're in contact with something pleasant, what usually arises is the feeling of wanting, of, of liking, of desiring, of, and then gets stronger of, of, of desiring, having to have, having to own, having to experience, having to possess, having to control, having to consume, or whatever that is. Does that sound familiar? So we talk about it in the meditation world that we call it a vipassana. One of the ways it manifests is what's the thing called a vipassana romance, where you're on retreat or you're at Spirit Rock on Monday night and you know, you're sitting quietly meditating and somebody comes in and, oh, they're cute. And you know some of the corny rights, especially on meditation when you have a week of silence to, to you know, really <laughs> proliferate a lot and you can't talk to them and... <laughs> You end up getting married and having kids, and you move to Wyoming and have a ranch and farm, and and this whole proliferation of me and you and us, and then you then you starts getting messy and you get divorced, and oh, I was teaching a retreat up the hill, and there was it was a yoga retreat yoga meditation, and, and every time the person came in the hall, they so loved the hall, they kept fantasizing about building a miniature version of the hall back home. They could have a yoga studio with a yoga meditation center, and so every time she sat down, there's this whole proliferation of mind that involved, guess who? It involved her. This is the center stage of this, you know, the guru of the meditation center, yoga center. 
So, so watch how our lives are wrapped around this tendency. So that, you know, I mean, we talk a lot in, 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 in these teachings about the force of desire and wanting and attachment. But in this particular instance, to pay attention to how that, that very tendency, which is so deep in us, how it creates the one who is wanting, the one who is lacking, the one who is deficient, the one who needs this contact, this thing, this person, this experience to be whole, to be full, to be complete. To pay attention to the self-making nature of that experience. So it's not just, oh, there's the desire for coffee in the morning, but I've got to have this cup of coffee. And the traffic may better not be bad before I get there because I'm really grumpy until I get my caffeine. And this whole sense of me and my and my needs. And not to make that wrong, not to make that a problem, but just to see how that arises and how that, that, that what was an innocent flicker of a thought of, oh, it would be nice to have a cup of coffee, suddenly becomes this contracted demand and we're kind of contracted until we get the very thing that's, and if it's not just right, we're going to get mad at the person serving us. You know? That's a lot of suffering right there. In, that, in, that, in the one who wants, you know, and a cup of coffee is a pretty innocent example, but it could be a house or a lover or children or promotion or recognition or, you know, name it, whatever it is for you. So we have the movement of wanting, we have the movement of papancha that, that is um, triggered by something unpleasant in our environment or in our experience or with another. So, um, so it could be happening right now, like not liking this talk or not liking the meditation. Uh, somebody came up and said, oh, there was too much talking in the meditation. You know, I was having agitation about that. You know, and someone else came up and said, I love the meditation. It was great. You know, <laughs> this is what happens when you teach. You, know, you, you get praise and blame. <laughs> this person wasn't blaming. They were just reporting. And, um, and, and so the practice is, well, how do I deal with that? And what kind, of, what kind of self gets activated when I don't like what's happening in the meditation or in my body as it's getting older or sicker or in my partner who's, for some reason, not perfectly... In, perfectly mirroring and meeting me in every way that I should be known, you know, and, ev- and there's a slight, you know, flicker of lack of attunement and then the, the narcissistic rage comes up, you know, how dare you look at the, 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 the self-structure that gets created. I need to be seen. I need to be met. I need to be loved in a certain way. And when I don't, there's, there's, there's a... There's a sense of self that's very reactive, that's very contracted, that's very angry or fearful or doubting. You know, think about um, uh, when you're watching somebody on TV or listening to the radio who's uh, spouting a different point of view, political point of view, than your own, right? What happens to your mind and your body you know, as you start to take a position. You know, there's um, another, type of, another type of papancha is where we proliferate and develop this, this sense of self around our views and opinions. So try listening to somebody's political, religious point of view that you really strongly disagree with, right? 
and notice what happens to the sense of self that wants to argue, that wants to react, that wants to defend, that wants to get mad at this point of view, this perception. You just look at politics and the, the ego, the egomania that's in politics that's creating, making po- politics dysfunctional because of a, lo- you know, a lot of that is the selfing, the identification with positions through views and opinions and desires and wants and aversions, contractions. So we see on, on, when, when it's played out on, on the bigger stage beyond our own personal experience, we see what dysfunction it creates. I can't help thinking of that three-minute video of John Edwards doing his hair. Did you see that? <laughs> Didn't go down too well during the campaign. Three minutes. It was timed. Not that there's anything wrong with doing your hair, but anyhow. When you're doing other women. <laughs> So to notice the views that arise in relationship to yourself, especially around things that arise in your experience, in your meditation, particularly if it's difficult emotions, sadness, grief, loss, regret, and then the thought comes up, oh, you, should be, you shouldn't be bothered by this. You should be, you should be over this by now. That, that incident happened you know, six months ago. Why are you still grieving? Why are you still hurt? Why are you still upset? You should be beyond this to see those views that have a view about how we should be, how our, how our identity should be, how we should be in this world. Very constricting, very uh, contracting. And then there's just the simple papancha that's just purely about ourselves. You know, we go through that door out there and we go get a cup of tea or something and the door slams in our face, you know, and we the story, oh, see, that always happens to me. Nobody likes me. I thought I'd come to Spirit Rock and, you know, they'd be kind and, it's, you know, everywhere I go, you know, and I get to the cookies and they've run out and nobody thinks about me. You know, it's, it's just, you know, we go to the dinner and they've run out of cabbage and it's like, see, it's, it's the same thing. I, it's, 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 it's just never enough. It's, we make these stories. We we make these stories about ourselves that are self-referencing and usually very painful. So to see when 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 the mind's doing this, and see what happens when you just put the story down. You see it. You recognize it. You don't need to judge it. It's just what is. It's just arising. You say, "Oh, look at that." You can give it a name: story making, eye making, papancha thinking, proliferating, selfing, whatever, whatever name you want to give it. And you let it go. And you just come back to the simplicity of what's happening in your experience, which is walking through the door, <laughs> or going to the lunch line, or whatever it is, or you know, going to the car wash, or standing in line. So it's important to have a sense of humor about this part of the mind. You know, it can be torturous, incessant, and obsessive. 
and help if we can have a little spaciousness around it. This is from, I'll close with this, this is from Scoop Niska. Um, I shall say a couple of things. I'll say one last thing before I read from Scoop. So the, la- the, last, the last place that we identify, uh, just to finish that teaching, is around consciousness itself, that we take consciousness to be who we are. We ascribe our, we put our, that sense of self around awareness as ultimately who we are. And again, it's another way we limit ourselves. All, the, all these ways the mind tries to define ourselves, they're all limitations. We're much vaster and much more, we're beyond concept, we're beyond all these concepts. You know, it helps to have a limited sense of, well, this is me and this is my jacket, it's not your jacket, because then we would get very confused going home, that's my car outside, not yours. There's, rel- there's a place for that language and that those, but the thing that's ultimately, you know, who we are, does that jacket really belong to me? Well, it's sort of in my possession, but not really, just as children don't belong to us and our body doesn't ultimately belong to us. So, uh, West puts it this way, he says, in regard to our personality, which is another form, it's another way that we, you know, it's another way of saying that the personality is a constructed sense of all of who we are in our, in our, in our identity and whatnot. He says, one suggestion is to regard your personality as a pet. It follows you around anyway, so give it a home and make friends with it. Keep it on a leash when you need to and let it run free when you feel that it's appropriate. Train it as well as you can and then accept its idiosyncrasies. But always remember that your pet is not you. Your pet has its own life and just happens to be in intimate relationship with you, whoever you may be hiding there behind your personality. So, um, that's Wes Niska. So, um, I wanted to close with a short meditation. I'm going to do that. We're going to run over a couple of minutes. I, 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 I ask for your forgiveness in that. So we'll just close with a very short meditation. It'll be like one or two minutes. And some of you may have experienced this before. So I'm going to say a sentence. I am a meditator here. So just say that to yourself silently. I am a meditator here. And take off the word here. I am a meditator. Just feel into that. I am a meditator. And then just say the words I am. Take off the word meditator. Now just sit with the word I, just sense into that. Now remove the I and sit with that. So thank you for your attention, your practice. Please reflect on this during the week. Um, If it's been totally confusing, let it go. It's okay too.
Uh, use what's appropriate, let go of the rest. Uh, there's a, Louise would like a ride to San Rafael. Can anybody give Louise a ride? There's a hand at the back. And Louise, can you see the person? And then maybe they were stretching. Louise is there in the red. Is that you in the red? Can someone give Louise a ride? Yes, there's, a, there's someone down here. Okay, thank you, everybody. Have a good week. See you next week. And drive right outside of Spirit Rock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.